I'm extremely thankful to be back and in the pulpit again this morning, and I want to express my appreciation to Brother Ray for preaching last Sunday morning. He is an exceptionally good gospel preacher, and uh, more than that, he is a brother who knows how to encourage and uplift one another, and I appreciate him greatly for what he does. I also want to say something about the young men who spoke last Sunday evening. Not only did all the young men do a great job, but you can see the potential for the Lord's church to be strong and to be faithful when you have young men who have the talent, the ability, and the desire to do what they did last Sunday evening. And I am extremely proud of these young men. Let's focus for just a few minutes on studying with the Savior from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and the first half of that chapter. You know, as you look at this sermon to begin with, the Lord's teaching often exposed a lack of genuineness. People sometimes were just pretending in their religion. They were fakes. They were not what they were supposed to be. In fact, he uses the word hypocrite to describe them. Now, you may not know where the word hypocrite comes from, but it is used with regards to an actor, a stage player. One of the things that I observed in going to the Bible lands is the fact that almost every city of any size had a theater in it. And just like any city of size has perhaps a movie theater in it today, or maybe you go to a larger city that has a coliseum or a stadium, and people go and they observe people perform, whether they're performing playing a sport, or whether they are performing some musical act, or maybe even a play. But it was someone who, for instance, would wear a mask, and they would, by that mask, try to make you believe that they were that person. In reality, they're pretenders. Sometimes people can be so persuaded by a pretender they actually begin to believe that that person is the character that they are playing. Let me give you a personal illustration, if you don't mind. When Coretta and I were students at Freed Hardeman, we went to plays quite frequently. And when we would go to the play, one of them, Brother Jody Apple's wife, Evelyn Apple, played a blind woman. And we watched that play, and she went through, and they led her by the hand, And so much so that after the play, I began to believe she really was blind. Of course, I learned later that she wasn't. But you you are so persuaded by a person's act, by their pretending. There are some people who have become so good at play acting as a Christian, as a disciple of the Lord, that people begin to believe that's who they really are. But you see, throughout the Bible, there are many people whose religion is nothing more than a pretense. When Jeremiah wrote in chapter 3 and verse 10, speaking about Israel and Judah, he says, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah 
has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Judah was attempting to try to make God and others believe that she had turned her life around, and God said, that's not really the case. I don't have her whole heart. In Matthew 23 and verse 14, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. For pretense make long prayers. They were not speaking to God, they were speaking to those round about them, letting others know how good they viewed themselves. Well, here's what I would like for us to do this morning. I would like for us, and of course James 1 and verse 26 speaks about ones whose religion is vain. But I want us to look at four things. Three of them are revealed specifically in the text. The first one is that of almsgiving or giving. Then he talks about praying. Then he talks about fasting. And then I want to sort of summarize it under the general theme of exhibition. Let's begin and look at verses 1 through 4. Brother Shannon just read the first two verses, but let's look at the four verses that appear here together. Therefore take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore when you do a charitable deed, do not sound your trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret rewards you openly. Now, most of our translations use the word charitable deed in the first verse. Actually, the original word is the word for righteousness. And it really goes back to the lesson that we studied together two weeks ago when in Matthew 5 and verse 20, Jesus says, I say unto you that except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, righteousness is something that people can see, something they can observe by something we do. And some people wanted their righteousness to be seen by people. When you get to verse 2, he actually does use the word for charitable deeds or almsgiving. There's actually an English word for that, elementary. And uh, I remember the first time I saw the English word. We had moved to Clarksville. We got our telephone bill in. And it says, this bill reflects an elementary concession. I had to go look up my dictionary to remember what that word meant. And then when I saw it meant a charitable gift, I thought, do they think I need some help? I guess. I never asked for it. But I never told them I didn't want it either. (laughs) 
But uh, you recognize, that's what the word means. It means something charitably done. But you see, God has ordered, God has commanded, God has designed compassion toward those who are in need. I could take a lot of passages. I want to take a couple for you. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Look at verses 7 through 11. And in this passage, God contemplates the situation that's going to happen in every society, but particularly among those who are of his people. He says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give him, because the thing, the Lord your God, will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the poor and your needy in your land. You see, what God saw was there would always be, there'll always be the poor. They'll never cease from the land. God didn't design some sort of welfare system to be administered from Jerusalem. He saw that it would be something local. He saw that it would be something that would be, you see your neighbor, you see his need, and you provide for his need. And he said, you don't shut your heart up. In fact, he said, don't let there be in your heart this idea that the seventh year, every seven years they released a slave and say, I'm not going to give him anything because he won't work for me very long. He said, if a man needs something, you lend to him. You provide what he needs. God wanted there to be compassion among his people. And when Paul began his missionary effort among the Gentiles, and he met with Peter and James and discussed that they would go to the circumcision and he to the uncircumcision, verse 10 says, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Paul said, I thought it was a great opportunity for Gentiles to help Jews and that the wealthier help the poorer. See, giving was designed by God. But you see, our mentality today is, is that let the wealthy do it. Let the rich be the ones who give and who help. And there are some people who have a greater capacity to give, but everybody has some ability to give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3, he's talking about the Macedonians. And he says that their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. And he says, for I bear witness according to their ability. And yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. You had poor people supporting the preaching of the gospel. 
Everybody can give. You may not give as much, but you can give something. Of course, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 warns the rich. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, let that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. But sometimes what we're able to give may not always be monetarily. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had come to the temple and they were entering in at the gate called Beautiful. And while they're entering in, there's a man there who is begging alms. He's seeking a charitable gift. And it says, A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, and they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I will give you. What I have I will give you. You see the generosity of Peter and John. And of course, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. But the key here in verses 1 through 4 is why does one give? What's your motivation for giving? And when you start seeing that, you, you observe what the Lord said. He said these hypocrites, they sound a trumpet. That is, they call everybody's attention. Notice there's two places he talks about them giving. In the synagogues, just a little while ago, the plates were passed and Various ones of us put money in that plate. If you were in the synagogue, they would want to call attention to the amount that they were putting in. If they helped someone on the street, a poor person, who may be like the one laid at the gate called Beautiful, sound a trumpet. Let everybody know what I'm doing. And Jesus said, if they've done that, they've received their reward they're not going to get anything from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3, Paul puts it like this. And he says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Okay, let's move now to praying. Let's look at verses 5 through 15 for just a moment. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, Pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. 
Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now Jesus specifically calls out those who used vain repetitions in the public, in the synagogues, and in the street corners. He calls into question three things. Why, where, and how should one pray? And when one does, are they doing it to God as God would have? Now the purpose of this is not to discourage prayer or even public prayer. Sometimes we can take a passage and we can go too far with it, and that was never intended. Jesus prayed publicly, and he encouraged others to pray. For instance, in John chapter 11, when Jesus was calling Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, it says, They took the stone away from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And you know, I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus could have prayed that prayer silently, but he did so publicly. Or you go to Acts 20 and verse 36, Paul meeting with the elders from Ephesus. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There's a public prayer there. But let's look at that threefold thing the Lord addresses. Why pray? What are we doing when we pray? We're speaking to God the Father. So many times when public prayer is led, like these Pharisees, these hypocrites, they are speaking so that the audience hears them and thinks they are someone special. In chapter 6 and verse 6, he said, Pray our Father or to your Father. In John 16 and verse 23, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father, in my name he will give you. When we pray, whether it is privately or publicly, we're speaking to God. We may speak out loud, others may hear us, but we're not speaking to the audience. We're speaking to God. Sometimes our prayers betray the fact that we're speaking to the audience. The second thing is where pray. 
I've already emphasized that prayer in public was authorized and it was taught. But the majority of the prayer that the Lord looks at here is the private prayer. I challenge you to do something. I challenge you to get your concordance, whether it's a printed concordance like Strong's or Cruden's concordance, or whether you use one on a computer, and you search every time the form of the word pray occurs, Matthew through John, and look at it and just look at the context in which it appears. And let me tell you what you're going to find. The majority of those passages are going to talk about prayers that were prayed privately. Let me illustrate that to you. Mark 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. You don't just pray where everybody's at. You go, you find a solitary place. You're not going to have any interruptions. No one's going to be speaking to you. You've got an opportunity to pray by yourself. Or you go to Matthew 14, verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. You see, Jesus was by himself. Or you go to Luke 5, verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Our prayers ought to be the majority of them private between us and God. The only time that you pray is it when we bow our heads here at services or when you offer thanks for a meal. The third thing is how to pray. Jesus said to them to pray after this manner. In Luke 11, verses 1 and 2, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That sound familiar? The prayer that Jesus taught them to pray. You don't use the vain repetitions because God already knows what you need before you ask Him. God doesn't need for me to say, now, uh, let's say again, God, I want you to do this, and we say it over and over again. God gets it the first time. In fact, He got it before we ever said it. Here's something to observe. The model prayer given by the Lord is less than one minute long. You know, you can go to Luke chapter 18 and the Pharisee and the tax collector are praying. The Pharisee's prayer was much longer. Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I give tithes of all that I possess. I fast twice in a week. Go on and on and on. The tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went down to his house justified. I'm not suggesting that every prayer ought to be 30 seconds long. What I am suggesting is, is that 
God already knows what we're going to need and that our prayers don't have to be that long in order to be acceptable to God. The third aspect, if you'll notice with me now, verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Fasting. Let's talk about it for just a moment. This was an Old Testament practice that was commanded by God. The word that is often translated fast literally means to afflict the soul. The idea is you're fasting to suffer. You know, sometimes when we do not eat, our stomach growls, it gnaws at us, and there are those hunger pains. What he is saying is, is that when you fast... You deprive yourself of something. Listen to Isaiah 58. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? It is, or is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is it this not the fast that I have chosen? to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? God said, is this not what I really intended when I created the fast? For you to look at your life and make some changes. When you afflict your soul, you realize your dependency upon God. You realize when you deprive yourself of food, what a man who has no food feels. Sometimes the fasting was going without food. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in the Sushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night, or night or day. They did it, according to the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement. That day of the year when sacrifices were offered to make them right with God again. Leviticus 16, verse 29. It shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. That's the fasting. Later, that developed into four annual fasts. We think about the feast days. 
But you also need to know about the fast days. Zechariah 8, 19. Thus says the Lord, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and the cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Four times that they fasted. But you see, we're not under the Old Testament. We're under the New Testament. And under the New Testament, the church did fast. But it was voluntary. It was not in a specific month or a specific day of the month that fast took place. In fact, one of the criticisms of the disciples of Jesus was they didn't fast all the time. Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15, they said, Why do the Pharisees fast often and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus basically said, You can't fast while the bridegroom's there. It's not appropriate. It's not the right time. He said, There'll come a time, then they will fast. There were special occasions when fasting did take place in the church. In Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, sending Paul and Barnabas out on that first missionary journey they did. In Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they commended them to the Lord who believed. And even privately, in the home, the husband and the wife do not deprive one another with uh, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to prayer or fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan do not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But you see, these people wanted others to think their affliction was severe and was sustained because they would disfigure their faces. They'd make themselves look like they were fasting and having such a hard time doing it Fasting a long time. You see, for instance, in the book of Esther, they only fasted for three days. Sometimes these fasts was fast were only for a day. That brings me to the last part, which I'm going to sort of try to wrap this all together. And that is, to them, their righteousness was an exhibition. You get over to chapter 23 in verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so also outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You want people to think you're great. You're spiritual. But he said, that's not what's on the inside of you. And the key question is, for whom does one practice righteousness? Why are you here this morning? Why do you sing the songs? Why do you bow your head in prayer? Why do you partake of the Lord's Supper? Is it praise to God, or are you looking for praise from man. Matthew 23, 5, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries bald and enlarge the borders of their garments. They dress in such a fashion as to make everybody know, Look how religious I am. 
They got what they were seeking. They were seeking the praise of men, and they got the praise of men. If that's what you're seeking, that's what you will get. But you see, what's important is not what men see, but what God sees. This lesson can be a reality check for us. I am sure that many of those hearing the Lord speak probably were smitten with guilt. Why am I a disciple of the Lord? Why am I following Him? When I was baptized, was I baptized to impress other people, make other people think I'm religious? Or was I baptized because I love God, I want to be forgiven of my sins, and was penitent in my heart? Who are you trying to please? What is my relationship with the Lord? Is it real or is it fake? I don't know if you've thought a lot about that, but the Lord's hitting hard at people whose religion is not genuine. It doesn't go to their core, who have not put Jesus first in their life. But you can make changes now. You see, we're going to sing this invitation song, and this is not some sort of just ritual. Some people might think it is. But this is a time, this is an opportunity for those who are not children of God to say, I want to be a child of God. I'm not concerned with what other people think about me. I want to please the God of heaven. And it's a time for those of us who've been play-acting at our Christianity to make things right with the one true God. If you need to come, would you come as we stand and sing?